Well, aren't you thankful we have a hope in life and death found in Jesus Christ? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Uh, Today we're going to learn why we need that hope so much. Uh, Please turn your Bibles to Romans 3. Romans chapter 3. Pastor Thomas said one more week of bad news. Um, I decided last night I need another week. So, unfortunately, we'll be saying the same thing uh, next time we come together on Romans. Uh, there's a small section, Romans three nineteen and 20, that is one of those passages where every phrase just requires you to slow down and look at it. And after about 40 or 45 minutes of preaching this morning, I just didn't think we would be, be ready for that. So we're going to look at uh, Romans three nineteen and 20 next week. Well, uh, as we've been looking at the opening chapters of Romans, uh, Paul uh, has a clear agenda. He's demonstrating that both Gentiles and Jews face God's wrath because of their human sinfulness. He starts out with the Gentiles in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And he describes a list of sins, a vice list, if you will, that... The Gentiles commit because they will not submit to God. They do not want to live as if God exists. They exchange a knowledge of God for a lie. And they demonstrate all forms of human sinfulness. Gentiles, by the way, would be us. Many of us here today. After that, in Romans 2, uh, the Jewish people get his full attention They like to boast in different advantages, like their possession of the Torah, the law of Moses, and in the right of circumcision, which they think makes them different than any other nation, at least in the first century here. And yet Paul tells them that uh, the Jewish people were being outdone by Gentiles who actually are obeying the truth, although they have neither the Torah nor the right of circumcision. They're obeying the truth because they have circumcised hearts. In Romans chapter 3, Paul continues to focus on the Jewish people and he gets into a debate. It's been a few weeks since we looked at this, but he gets into a debate with an imaginary Jewish opponent. I think the imaginary Jewish opponent is just like many Jews that Paul uh, interacted with in synagogue after synagogue all around the world. And so in Romans 3, verses 1 through 8, Paul answers these odd arguments against his gospel that might come from the Jewish people. And uh, as he does so, by the end, he just kind of finally swats away their last argument. He's done with it. And he, he says, their condemnation is just. People who reason and think this way, their condemnation is just. And that's when we come to the final section of the bad news that all humanity are under the, or is, is under the wrath of God. And so in Romans 3, 9 through 20, Paul will continue addressing the Jewish people, but by the end will demonstrate how God holds all humanity accountable to their sin. In this passage, Paul is going to function uh, something like a prosecuting attorney who has a case to make against 
uh, someone. In this case, Paul's case is against all people, all humanity. And he is going to lay the offense of all people wide out in the open. Uh, again, like a prosecuting a- attorney, he issues a command, a, an opening statement in verse 9. He then presents damning evidence that will verify the charge, uh, verses 10 through 18. And then he makes a final statement, verses 19 and 20, before resting his case entirely. His case, by the way, is so solid, not to give away the end of the story, but it's so solid that by the end, the opponents are speechless. Every mouth is stopped. No one can say anything. And so uh, this morning, I want to dig into the text, and we'll consider verses 9 through 18. And uh, again, next time, we'll look at verses 19 and 20. So um, if you have a handout, it's, it's in the bulletin. You can use that, or you can follow along in the PowerPoint here uh, as we work through the text together. So... Uh, the first part of Paul's argument is an opening statement. He makes an opening statement, and that statement, if I were summarizing it just succinctly, is this. All people are under sin. That phrase, I cannot emphasize enough in this sermon. All under sin. Uh, let's look at his opening statement, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now, the beginning of verse 9 here might sound familiar. It's very similar to verse 1 and the questions he asked with the imagined Jewish opponent uh, in verse 1. He again considers what advantage the Jewish people might have. And although the questions are quite similar, the answers are completely the opposite. Uh, In verse 1, Paul says that their advantage was much in every way. And here, his answer is none at all. So what advantage do they have? So how can Paul do this both ways? How can he have it both ways? In verse 1, I think he's talking about a particular kind of advantage that he can say chiefly in every way. It's an advantage related to their Jewish heritage. They had the word of God. And in chapter 9, he's going to go through that even more. Whereas in verse 9 here, he deals with advantages about being judged by God. Do the Jewish people have any sort of advantage when it comes to being judged by God for their sin? Will they be held accountable, as accountable as the Gentiles? And that's why Paul's answer is different. His answers in the two verses might go something like this. Although you have historical advantages regarding knowledge of God's will and relationship to him, verses 1 and 2. You do not have advantage regarding responsibility and accountability for personal sin, verse 9. Okay, so that's where Paul is going in the passage. He's going to talk about sinners being held accountable, all of them. And the reason Paul says that the Jewish people are at no advantage in verse 9 is explained with this phrase, for we have already charged... That all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Paul has already accused or charged that all people 
are this way in Romans 1 and 2. If you've been here for the last several sermons, you know that's exactly what he's done. He's made the charge that all Jews and all Gentiles are under sin. Here in this passage, however, he does something interesting. Paul personifies sin um, as a force or something like a tyrant who holds the human race imprisoned in guilt and under judgment. John Stott, uh, one of my favorite commentaries in Romans, at least uh, other than in Romans 5, John Stott said this. He said, sin is on top of us. It weighs us down and is a crushing burden. See, Paul personifies sin. Sin is not just how we fall short of God's glory. That's true. That's one way to use sin. Here, sin is a power. It's a force that pushes us down. It's unrelenting. It's merciless. All are under sin. We're all under the power, or perhaps you could say the control of sin. Every human being is under sin's power. And this was not a new reality that Paul conceived of here. This is testified all throughout the scripture. It started when? Started in the garden with the fall. All under sin. Now Paul's pessimism about mankind is unusual for first century authors. As a matter of fact, many of even Jewish writers had a type of optimism when it came to the ability of men and women to do good. I wrote a whole section Uh, in a dissertation on a man by the name of Philo who had a very optimistic view of the ability of men and women to do what's good. They believed in universal human goodness. By the way, this is also how many people in our world today view humanity. They claim that humanity is basically good. Psychologists claim this as well. If you were to go take a course on anthropology, the study of man down at ODU or James Madison University or others in the area, I'm sure this is what you would be taught. Basic goodness lying within man. But Paul says, or should I say the word of God says, that human beings are universally and thoroughly sinful. After this opening charge or accusation that sin is over us or upon us, we're all under it, Paul presents his supporting evidence, and the evidence is overwhelming. He has overwhelming scriptural proof that all people are under the grip of sin. I want to read with you verses 10 through 18, uh, just so we can get it all in one setting. Uh, so now we move along to Paul's, Paul presents the damning evidence from Scripture. Look at verse 10 with me. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, 
they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What happened to Paul here? Bad night's sleep? <laughs> Let's just make it as bad as we can. No, no, he's, he's pulling together an authority. He's pulling together scripture. Paul does not just stop with accusation. All are under sin. He proves it. He does so by calling six Old Testament passages forward to prove the utter depravity of all human beings. And the way he does this is amazing. If you have the handout, I've made you copy something like this one here. If not, you can see it. And I just want you to kind of get the visual effect of what he does. He quotes from scripture, and what he does is he actually weaves together passages from his Old Testament Bible as like an authoritative final word on whether we should be optimistic or pessimistic about the spiritual condition of men and women, boys and girls. And so you can see there on the right, the yellow highlights, those are six different texts, I believe, that Paul the Apostle uses or weaves together uh, to create what's called a katina, a scripture chain, a composite quote from all these different passages. And it, it truly is an amazing, uh, an amazing quote. Uh, matter of fact, the first chapter of my dissertation, I wrote on this one passage. And I ha- actually had a really hard time putting it all in one chapter. People write books about this kind of stuff. But um, to a modern reader, we might read this and wonder why Paul gives so much support. Why is he apparently joining together so many? And when we might think of the text as like being random. Like he's pulling from Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Isaiah. Why is he pulling together all these texts? Well, the, the, the real uh, truth about this is these are not random texts. They're not unnecessary. But Paul is combining them in a very orderly and strategic way to make three points about humanity uh, in the passage. Okay, and so we're going to work through the text and uh, we're going to consider the three major points. There are three sections of quotes here that we'll see. The first one is verses 10 through 12. And here Paul makes a general but very significant and important point with these verses. If I were to summarize it, I would say he's saying we are universally and thoroughly sinful. Here at the beginning of verse 10, again, Paul appeals to a written authority, the written authority. Then he begins quoting here, right? Different phrases from the Old Testament that would prove the, that the fact that we are universally and thoroughly sinful. The first is, uh, none is righteous. None is righteous. Now, 
of the seven phrases he'll give in this first part, five of them start with the word for none. The only two that don't start with all and together. The point is he's being extensive. It's everyone. It's every being. That is no, no one among the fallen human beings meets God's righteous standard. That's his first one. He quotes from Ecclesiastes 7 here to says that, that, that a righteous human being does not exist. And to make his point crystal clear, he adds a little piece of Psalm 14 to the end of this when he says, not even one. Okay, so it's like Ecclesiastes 7. None is righteous, and in case you didn't get it, not even one human being. Not even one. Paul moves beyond this to the next citation. No one understands, and he starts here with Psalm 14, the passage that we read together in our scripture reading today. Um, and uh, all of the quotes from this point on in the passage in verses 12 and 13, or verses 11 and 12 come from Psalm 14. This description, no one understands, means that fallen human beings are not able to come to an intelligent grasp of something. Okay, but he doesn't really tell us what. Right? I'm reading both in the psalm, I'm reading here. What, do we, what, what don't we understand? Okay, but I think that the implied premise here is we don't understand God's high and righteous ways. I think of another passage here when I think of this particular citation. You could write down 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14 where Paul is telling the Corinthians, he says, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them. Paul's telling the Corinthians, the natural man, the unbeliever, is not able to understand the things of the Spirit of God, and then he finishes, he says, because the things of the Spirit are spiritually discerned. Spiritually praised. In other words, if you're going to understand the amazing things of the Spirit of God, you need the Spirit to help you. Not only are human beings at a deficit so that we could could not receive the things of God's Spirit for ourselves. We could not accept them for ourselves. We can't even understand them. The significance of them unless the Holy Spirit of God Enables us. I think that's what 1 Corinthians 2.14 is saying. So as Paul says in this passage, no one, get it? No one, none understands. We move along. No one seeks for God. This is an intriguing description here. We like to talk about people who are seeking after God. We like to leave room For people who are seeking after God, perhaps in some foreign nation or country, they just don't have the opportunity to hear about Jesus, but they're seekers. Instead, this text says what? No one seeks after God. I think we can take this further. It's my theological positioning here, my personal opinion, is that the only person who seeks after God for genuine reasons, is the one who's responding to God seeking him. Seeking him. Now, there's an illustration that we like to use. It's a tract. 
Uh, we've used the bridge track. How many of you like to use the bridge track? Okay, all right, a few of you. You know what the bridge track is? I, I thought, you know, I should have put a visual up here, but I didn't. But I'm just going to, you know, visualize it here for a little while. You, you've seen this before, hopefully, where there's a man normally, because we like to be mean to men, not women. Okay, so there's a man on this side of a huge chasm, right? And on the other side is what? God. And what's in the chasm below? Hell. <laughs> Fire. And the way the bridge track grows is there's like these little bridge attempts to get across to God. There's something that goes 5 feet, 10 feet, 15 feet. But the point is, everything stops well short of getting across. And the things that normally are in the bridge track are uh, religion, works, human works can't get you there. Religion can't get you there. Money can't get you there. And the bridge track is good in its own way, but we might need a little different track for Romans 3. Okay, so I'm not blasting your favorite track. I think it's helpful. But the Romans 3 track would look like a dead man laying on the ground, not seeking anyone, or a pile of corpses with the chasm. Or... If anything, looking at the next phrase, the man going the exact opposite way from God. All have turned aside. That's the next phrase. All have turned aside. This quote means that all mankind have deserted the way. They've gone the wrong way. We deliberately turn away from God and the paths that he would have us take. We continue. Whoops. Together, they have become worthless. Here, Paul quotes scripture again from Psalm 14 to say that um, uh, together they become worthless. Or together it means, again, there's no exception to this rule. It's to a man. All of them are corrupted. The word worthless is used of things going sour, like milk. Um, the human race is... Spoiled entirely? Rancid? I mean, what do you do with milk that's gone sour? What can you do with it? It's worthless. Next, and we go quickly through some of these. No one does good, not even one. Finally, Paul ends this first wave of quotes by saying, no one does good. The point is clear. We are universally and thoroughly sinful. And so this is true, men and women. This is true not just of others and of outsiders. It is true of me. <coughs> it's true of us here today. So look around the room for just a moment. You can do it. Look around the room. What do you see? Sinners. <laughs> look in the mirror every single morning. What do you see? Sinners. Sinner. That's Paul's general rule. We are universally and thoroughly evil. But then he takes things to a different level. It gets more specific in verses 13 and 14. And I want to read those with you. So look down your Bible, verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. 
their mouth is full of cursing. Here, the second point he makes is that uh, men and women, boys and girls, all humanity, are corrupt in our inner beings <clears throat> and our speech. So if you're looking for the blank, it's the word speech. <clears throat> now you notice uh, in verses 13 and 14, there are four key words, uh, and the commentators are usually pretty good at pointing this out. I hope you've seen this before. If not, this will just be a new revelation for you. But the four key terms of verses 13 and 14 all have to do with the organs of speech. Okay, so if you're following them along, it says you, you look for them and you find the word throat, then tongues, then lips, then mouth. And what some of the commentators have pointed out is <clears throat> the order of the terms is also insightful. Uh, what Paul is likely doing here is he's reproducing the sequence of organs involved in producing speech then gives a final summative word to describe it all. So the way it goes uh, is throat, right? Uh, tongue, it, like, like words are coming out. Throat, tongue, lips, and then finally it all, the mouth, together. <clears throat> and so Paul considers what proceeds from the heart through the throat to the tongue to the lips, out the mouth. <clears throat> and yeah, I want to look at each expression just very briefly again. Again, these are quotes from the Old Testament. The first is, their throat is an open grave. Now, I think that the overwhelming point of verses 13 and 14 is the corruption of human speech. But here with this phrase, I think that he's also describing something of the corruption that comes from our inner being. It's like deeper than just the mouth. Our problem's like deeper than that because he says their throat is an open grave. He compares what comes out of us as human beings to the stench of opening up an ancient grave, which I'm sure would not be a good smell at all. I mean, we've, we've all experienced bad breath before, right? But this metaphor is really powerful. What comes out in our speech is filthy stench. Uh, he continues by saying their tongues are used to deceive. We deceive or we flatter and lie with our tongues as a race. Then he says the venom of asp is under their lips. And this is a, an interesting illustration. It's, a, it's an illustration of an asp, a snake, that is especially repulsive. The fangs of this sort of snake we're talking about here normally lie foiled back in the upper jaw of the snake until he strikes. When he strikes, his, follow, or his, his hollow fangs drop down to inject the poison into the victim. I hate snakes, so even that description gives me the creeps. <laughs> this metaphor describes how our speech harms other people. Paul's saying the lips of humans are like fangs that inject poison on others. That's a powerful condemnation. He continues, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Full of. Not just occasional curses and bitterness. But the depravity is pervasive in speech 
the speech of human beings, men and women. You see, the truth is, as a fallen race, we, we hurt so many people with our mouths. Even so many of us who are believers in Jesus Christ do this. Our tongues follow well-worn paths of lying and deceiving and slandering and yelling and cursing and bullying with our mouths. We heap sin upon sin upon sin with our mouths and we often injure the ones that we claim to love the most. That's our race. We hurt people, even as believers, that we've covenanted together to be with in marriage and in the church. No wonder James, the brother of Jesus, said what he did about the tongue. Remember what James says? James 3, 2 through 6. Let me, let me just read it to you. James says, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, James says. Though they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also is the tongue, or the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. James says, how great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. It's like, James, tell us what you really think about the tongue. James's half-brother, Jesus, our Savior, said himself, it is not what goes into a man that defiles him. It is what comes out of him. I've been studying and teaching a class in seminary uh, to pastoral students in 2 Timothy. This is Paul's last letter that he writes. In that last letter, he warns Timothy about the last days in chapter 3, and he gives him a vice list of 18 different sins that people will commit in the last days. 18 sins, and all of those sins, I counted out this morning, all of those sins can be demonstrated through our tongue. Sure, through our feet, 
hands, fists. You can demonstrate some of those sins in that way. But according to my count, every single one can be demonstrated through our tongue. And so it comes from within and, and goes out through our lips. We're filled with sins of speech. But Paul's not quite done. Uh, in verses 15 through 18, he, con- he continues the citation to prove our sinfulness. And this time, he'll, do with, he'll deal with our sinful acts. Look at verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So in this section, uh, Paul gives full attention Uh, moves from our words to our deeds or our actions. And it ranges from how we use our feet to how we use our eyes. So he is describing like a full bodily uh, depravity here as well. But he starts out, uh, we'll just go quickly through these. Uh, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Uh, Verses 15 through 17 all come from the same chapter in the Old Testament, Isaiah 59 which is a chapter that Paul will quote often. It's a chapter you probably should look up this week and dig into because it's important for Paul when he writes his letters over and over again. He's going to quote from Isaiah 59. And I think he does so because in that chapter, there's a striking depiction of God discovering that there's no righteous person in this world. Now, uh, this text, uh, their feet are swift to shed blood, teaches that the feet of fallen men and women pick up their pace when they find opportunity to take life and inflict violence or vengeance. Paul is saying that there's something fundamentally wrong with our hearts. We injure and hurt and sometimes kill one another to get our ways. You say, well, that's not really the way we are in America today. No one's going around killing each other. We hear about tribal civil wars in Sudan where thousands of people are killed in violence. And we think, well, that doesn't happen in our civilized world. And I say, have you not watched the news? Have you not paid attention to some source of media to see these things? Do you know why we don't kill each other more than we do? The answer is the police. Or prison. Or the threat of the death penalty. Do you know what would happen if we took those things away? Law enforcement. Just punishment of government. Bearing the sword as is demonstrated in scripture to keep man from man. If you took these things away. We would loot and steal and beat, and attack, and defend, and kill. Paul says their feet are swift to shed blood. He continues, in their paths are ruin and misery. Make sure you get this. Regarding human beings... What lays in their wake, what's done after we get through an area is ruin. We ruin things. 
and misery. We make people miserable. Ruin, misery, and destruction follow us. Paul's describing the misery that we inflict upon others in our paths. Two others, and we're almost done. The way of peace they have not known. That is what is missing in, the, in, the, in our wake or our path is peace, true peace, genuine well-being. And he concludes, there's no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, one of the commentators, uh, C.E.B. Cranfield, explained it this way. He said, To say that there is no fear of God before his eyes is a figurative way of saying that the fear of God has no part in directing his life. God is left out of his reckoning. That is, he's a practical atheist. And so it's a natural or fallen impulse for us to exclude God from our calculations altogether. This, again, is a citation from the Old Testament scripture that Paul uses to describe the condition of men and women. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, this is the damning evidence from scripture that supports the main idea. I said there's a main idea we all need to get. All under sin. And the point Paul's been making is there's no little part of us that's righteous. There's not one of us that is good. We've broken every one of God's laws. We are thoroughly corrupt. That's the bad news. All under sin. And I would ask you before we leave here today to let that settle into your soul for a second. Think about that. Do you really believe that that's how bad it is? This is true of all men and women, boys and girls around us. Have we bought into what our culture says about there being something good? Or are we going to follow Scripture and understand what Scripture says about our neighbor, about our coworker, about those around us? And believers, uh, I would also ask you, are you fighting this sin? God, through the Holy Spirit, has set you free by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross so you can have freedom to sin. Are you fighting sin? I mean, we read this stuff, for instance, about speech. And yet we think, well, it's just, it's just my brother. It's my sister. I can be mean in that way. No, no, no. Or it's just my spouse. Other people won't know. Are you fighting sin? Romans is going to give us more about fighting sin in different chapters. But is this really settled down for you? Do you understand just how bad it is for us? 
As we close, might I also encourage any one of you who perhaps have never really considered this before to know that there is a way of salvation. If you keep reading in Romans, even in Romans chapter 3, you will see that God sent forth his son, Jesus. From my perspective, I don't know why he would do it. We were so messed up. But God sent forth his only son, Jesus, to be born on this world, to die on a cross in your place, so that you could be saved from the consequences of your sin. And I trust that today you would do that. You would believe in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation and turn to him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of working through your word today, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. As we consider it, Lord, just the soberness of it has struck my heart this morning. Perhaps it has others here. Sure, we can look around and we can see others sinning. Uh, But Lord, help us to look in the mirror. Help us to know that we all break your law. We all sin and fall short of your glory. Lord, this morning, uh, my brothers and sisters sang a song together. They, They sang, How Great Thou Art. We like to rejoice in that, how great you are. But that's also our biggest problem. You are so good. And our problem is we are not. We are not. And so thank you for sending your son to die on this cross so that we could be delivered from our sins. I pray for my brothers and sisters here who perhaps are not living in the freedom that you've given to them through the Spirit. I pray that they would fight sin, put it to death, so that they might be able to live in ways that reflect who you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.